кадре, который мы получили только что, Владимир Путин Нас по видеосвязи. не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности... гоном вас. С новым веком. As he invades and menaces his neighbors and trolls and threatens the West, Vladimir Putin has often been compared to a cartoonish villain, an image he appears to embrace, cultivate, and relish. And over the years, there have also been numerous biographies of Putin that have chronicled the Kremlin leader's rise, life, and rule. But until now, at least to my knowledge, nobody has put these two things together. On today's program, we'll talk to the author of a newly released biographical graphic novel about the mercurial Russian leader's unlikely rise in tumultuous time in power. So stick around because this is going to be a lot of fun. Hello from my makeshift home studio in Washington, D.C.'s funky Adams Morgan neighborhood, and welcome to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UTA McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from our nation's capital is the one and only Andrew Weiss author of the just-released graphic biographical novel, The Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrews also served in the administrations of George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton in various posts, including Director for Russian-Ukrainian Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff and as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. These days, Andrew is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. Welcome to The Vertical, Andrew. Thank you for having me. And I've literally never been called the one and only at the one and point o- in my entire life. I do not know of another Andrew Weiss out there. <laughs> Maybe you are not the one and only, but for our purposes, you are. So, Andrew, first of all, congratulations on the book. I've read it. I've enjoyed it. And I'm really looking forward to talking uh, to you about it. And in the introduction, you you identify yourself as a Russia geek. So uh, from one Russia geek to another, why write a graphic novel about Putin? Where did this idea come from? Oh, well, there's a there's an interesting story about that, which is that, first of all, I've just over the years, not in a super nerdy way, always loved graphic novels. And the ones that are really good are really, really good. And so, mm-hmm. you know, for listeners who were unfamiliar with this, and it was kind of funny, the other night at Politics and Prose, Masha Yovanovitch was um, in a conversation with me as part of the rollout for the book, and she said she had never read a graphic novel. And so it made me, very nerdy guy that I am, be like, oh, Masha, you need to read Mouse by Arch Spiegelman. You need to read Persepolis by uh, Marjan Sachpi. You need to read Arab of the Future. So, like, there are these books that are out there that are incredibly powerful, that don't have any of the you know, they're not comics. They really tell complicated stories about troubling major issues. Um, And then they also open you up to new audiences, right? And new perspectives. So for me, writing this thing was something that kind of came out of left field, but it was, as you said at the beginning, how do we think about Putin? And how much of the way we think about Putin is based on image and artifice and embellishment as opposed to the actual person and where do we and how do we best disentangle those two things 
So when you when you researched it, did you look? Did you you obviously relied on a lot of your experience in government? I'm going to get to that in a, in a minute. But did you consult previous biographies of Putin, something like Masha Gessen's Man Without a Face, or 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 or, uh, or, or some of the other biographies, or, or how, how did you go about doing the research to to, to lay out the plot? Yeah, so I researched and wrote this as I would any of the stuff I do in my day job at the Carnegie Endowment. So I use the same kind of source material and it's you know the kinds of biographies you mentioned. The other one, which I think was really sort of paramount importance to me was uh, The News Are by Stephen Lee Myers. So the New York Times and yep. Catherine Belton's book, yep. Putin's yep. People. And there are just these nuggets in yep. all of these books, including Masha Gessen's um, as well, where there's some detail and part right. of the magic of writing a graphic novel is it's not about writing a you know two-page memo. It's not about writing a 500-page book. It's about like some nugget that can be depicted visually or an idea that can be conveyed visually, and that tells you something bigger. And doing that in this very space-compressed way requires you to think differently about how you can connect with a reader. And that was really for me, super fun to learn how to do it. And since I tweet already, like it's not that different. Right. And right. how do you conceive of something that really grabs people and connects and conveys something serious? And you worked with an illustrator here. Had you worked with him before? No, this was also something that was really unexpected. So when my agent introduced me to the publisher, or the editor of an imprint at Macmillan, who he himself is a successful graphic novelist, uh, named Mark Siegel. Mark gave me a bunch of books, a lot of which had to do with the theory, like the intellectual debate and theory of how comics operate and like what the comics medium is in intellectual terms. And then he gave me a bunch of other things, said, yeah, you should read these. And a couple of the books he gave me were by the guy who I ended up collaborating with, Brian Box Brown. And his books are so different than the books that I had read that often tend to be very literal, that tend to have a kind of noir or kind of throwback style to, you know, the right. comics heyday of the 50s or the 60s. Um, and they're airy and they're minimalist. And so, like, if you see a picture that he drew, just like the best New Yorker cartoonist, like, you kind of know he drew it. Mm -hmm. And he's a very interesting guy in that his he's never done someone else's book. And so for him, this was something he'd never done before. And for me, of course, I've never collaborated with an artist on anything. So it was really fun, but it was the best part, and here I'll shut up, is I was really insistent with him of like no visual cliches. Like there's gonna be no Matryoshka dolls, there's gonna be none of the visual shorthand that people usually fall back on to talk about Russia. And so when he, I would give him images, I would like do sort of Google image searches in Russian to find some particular picture of Putin that wasn't already out there in the mainstream. Mm -hmm. And I would look for things from unusual sources about Russian history or other types to, of, of material, precisely because I wanted this thing to look different and be fresh. And it wouldn't just play to the kind of preconceived notions that everyone carries around in their heads. Yeah, and that really worked. I mean, I like how he portrayed Putin. It, was, it wasn't the kind of stereotypical cartoonish uh, Bond villain Putin that we've become accustomed to, but it was nevertheless sinister. Um, I also appreciated a, a lot of the, the visual effects. That, that section where you were, there's a frame I remember in particular, where you were explaining 
what is the concept of Sistema? How Russian the Russian system is based not on institutions, but on patron-client networks um, and, and, and so on, and informal rules and roles. And you had Putin standing atop a kind of pyramid of cards, which I found I found really, really compelling. Um, one of the other things you did in the book, throughout the book, that I really appreciated was how you juxtaposed uh, the story of Putin's life and rise to power with both anecdotes about your time, uh, with anecdotes about your time in government dealing with Putin. And one of these, which really stood out to me, was the, the call the White House received from the Kremlin in August 1999 informing President Clinton that Putin was going to be the successor to Yeltsin. And you, as I understand it, were in the room for when, when President Clinton took that call, as you portrayed it in the book. Can you flesh this out for our listeners who, who may, uh, the book just came out two days ago, so that many of them haven't read the book, but can you flesh this scene out? I mean, it was described very, very vividly um, in, in, in the book, but how, how how the president reacted, how his closest re uh, advisors react, how this went over in the White House? Yeah, so it's important to remember when this was all happening. And we had just, uh, finished the war in Kosovo, and there was a intense low, compared to today's lows, it's, it's, it's nothing, but at the time it felt horrible in terms of the rupture that the war in Kosovo had had on U.S.-Russia relations. And then if I'm remembering correctly, Yeltsin and President Clinton met that summer at a G8, what was yes. then called the G8, um, and the goal was like, how do we get this thing patched up and how do we start working together again? And we had a little bit of momentum, and a you know, big part of working in government is keeping a relationship going. And it's not about necessarily big geopolitics; it's about sort of the, you know, the baskets of issues that are at the heart of any relationship between two countries. And we were trying to kind of breathe life back into the U.S.-Russia relationship from its doldrums, and. And then we get this call, and it wasn't totally, my memory is a little shaky because this is a long time ago. We're talking about 1999. Right. So going on, you know, a long time ago by by any standard. And my memory is there was a meeting that we were getting ready for where we were planning the two presidents would meet at the Asia Pacific Economic, uh, I can't remember, what's the C stand for in APEC? But in any uh, event, okay. uh, it's either Probably cooperation. <laughs> But in any event, um, APEC, APEC, and we were trying to, you know, continue the momentum from the meeting that had been in Germany. And then it was clear that Putin, I'm sorry, Yeltsin was not going to come. And so he called President Clinton and there's a great trove of these declassified documents that Mary Cerati, the author of Not One Inch, got from the Clinton Library. So you can go and pull these things up on the internet, but you can see when the, the the call happened that it's basically Yeltsin selling Bill Clinton on the notion of I've got this new guy, he had just become prime minister and he's gonna succeed me. And I'm gonna pull this kind of out of a hat. Um, it's a surprise to everybody, but I don't want you to be surprised, Mr. President. And all of us were like, oh, really? Like, <laughs> like we were not, um, you know, it was not something that was uh, clear to us when Putin was named prime minister that he was the successor, even though we all knew that that Yeltsin was casting around looking right. at different op different options. 
Um, and we had been dealing a lot at that point with Putin. So it was not exactly someone who was totally an unknown to us because he had been national security advisor and then prime minister in rapid succession. Yeah, no, it was, uh, I mean, I remember this time very vividly, even though it was, what, what, 23 years ago, I was, I was, I was working in Moscow as a journalist, um, and I was with the Boston Globe, and we got a leak before Putin was appointed, uh, saying that Yeltsin was going to name him prime minister and successor, and now, we, we, we were at this conundrum of what to do with this, because it seemed just so unbelievable and ridiculous, but yet it was coming from a very reliable source. Um, we can't, we couldn't lead on it, obviously. We buried it in the story. Um, figure if, if it happened, we'd look like it would look good. And if it didn't happen, nobody would notice. But, um, but I remember that time extremely vividly. So, um, but what the, the, did you all know much about Putin at that point? He had been FSB director uh, for about a year before he had become prime minister. Was he a known quantity in the NSC and in the White House at the time? Did he, he was playing liberal at the time. He was pretending he was a liberal, actually. Not so much with us. Um, and, it, you know, to come back to that analogy of a relationship, most of what policy consisted of day to day was dealing with problems, trying to fix issues, and also trying to push whatever the U.S. agenda was forward. And the stuff that we had dealt with uh, initially with Putin when he was national security advisor was a very sensitive issue related to worries about Iran's nuclear and missile programs. And this was one of the things that was at the real heart of U.S.-Russian relations in the late 1990s, because there were various uh, efforts that had been uncovered of proliferation concern. And Israel and other countries in the region were really worried about how this might uh, contribute significantly to uh, Iran as a threat. And so that right when I came into the White House in 98, there was actually already a channel established between my boss, uh, the then National Security Advisor, Sandy Berger, and Putin's predecessor, uh, who was named Andrei Kokoshin, yep. um, who's still around today. And so Putin stepped into that role, and we were dealing really intensively on specific uh, cases and also trying to create what was at the time seemed really important, uh, an export control regime whereby the Russian authorities would limit the ability of individual Russian military uh, firms, military industrial firms to sell and transfer types of equipment or technology to countries of concern like Iran. So we had worked very intensively with Putin throughout this period on, you know, hey, there's a, a report of, I'm just making this up, you know, Russian factory X selling product Y to Iranian end user Z, and you need to do something about it. And so the testing in a relationship like this is like, well, what do you see from the other side? Do they cover it up? Do they deny it? Do they do something like throw people in jail? And at the time, there was actually this very interesting pattern of the Russians throwing people in jail and interdicting shipments. But the problem, um, and there were serious, uh, there were a series of uh, under, of understandings between the U.S. and Russia about what the parameters would be. So Putin was part of that process. Where things I think got more interesting and more complicated was during the rush to Pristina, which was this famous incident where the Russians moved peacekeepers that were deployed in Bosnia yep. to try to help stave off 
NATO-led peacekeeping operation in Kosovo as a result of the, the, the conclusion of the war. So that, that was where we had some very sticky moments with Putin. So there was no, what I'm, it's a long way of saying to you, Brian, like people kind of had Putin's number um, as a result of all these intensive dealings. Like there was nobody in the White House who was kind of like, who is this guy or is he right. a liberal? Like people knew who he was and no one was right. thinking, oh, he's a liberal. Right. The reason I ask, because that those frames in the book where you portray this, just the, the it, it, there was this kind of dismay and almost horror, it seemed to be in the Oval in reaction to this, like, oh, my God, that guy. Are you kidding me? The, the, it, it, does that really capture the way you you all were reacting and how the president was reacting? I believe and I, I you know, it, it's been a long time. My memory is that the president was in a different part of the White House when we did that call and that he was speaking in like a theater in the old, what's now called the Eisenhower Executive Office Building. Um, and so it's across the street from the West Wing in that grand building, the, the you, know, it's a, you know, on 17th Street. And so we did the call from like an anteroom in that uh, theater wow. area, like it's an auditorium, basically. I don't know if it still exists. And so we did it sort of across the street from the West Wing. That's that's my memory of where the call uh -huh. happened. But in, in the the reactions, I mean, I just, the, the frame kind of depicted that you were all kind of dismayed by this. Another thing that you brought in that you brought in your own personal experience was the uh, the angry exchange between Clinton and uh, Putin in Clinton's farewell phone call uh, to to, uh, to to Putin when he raised the issue of Georgia um, in this and that that the you the you were all kind of taken aback by the the vitriol and the anger that 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 that, uh, that came out of Putin in that call that 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 kind of surprised me a little bit so I think everyone needs to remember Putin is a hothead yep. in a lot of ways. And it's come out time and time again. And, you know, I, I, this came up the other day on uh, in a radio conversation I was having with someone else. And I assume you remember this, where he like once was challenged about Russian human rights abuses and atrocities in Chechnya by a French reporter. And he told the French reporter, oh, if you've got problems with this, you surely don't understand Islam. I'm happy to arrange for you to come to Moscow and be circumcised and will cut off enough in the procedure that nothing grows back in that region. So, I mean, he's capable of these kinds yeah. of very uh, volcanic outbursts. And some of it may be just for effect and it's to kind of seem intimidating and it's to you know throw people off balance. Um, but at least in my experience, and this is a long time ago, as I said, in the you know days of dealing with him in the White House, that you know, kind of volcanic side of him was was already very visible. And given the power differential that existed between the US and Russia at that time, when Russia was far weaker and Putin was far less formidable, the fact that he was volatile played to the US advantage. And now here we are watching, you know, the Russian evacuation from Kherson um, on the day we're right. recording this, and it's a different dynamic, right? Where you would be more concerned about what would someone who's that volcanic do right. Um, right. as that withdrawal unfolds? And like, what risks will someone with that kind of personality create for a very dicey uh, military right. situation on the ground? And it's just a different world we're living in. 
Right. I also really like the um, you're recounting Strobe Talbot's first meeting with Putin when Putin just off the cuff references Fyodor Tuchev, who just so happened to be the subject of Strobe Talbot's senior thesis at Yale. Um, and this was a not so subtle signal from Putin that he had uh, effectively read Strobe Talbot's KGB file. Um, is, uh, did you get that from 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 Strobe Talbot or were you were you were you present at that meeting? I was at that meeting is my memory. But again, these are all things that happened when I was a young person. And now I'm a middle-aged person with a middle-aged person brain. So I probably can't <laughs> distinguish between things that are in Strobe's memoir, The Russia Hand, um, which I highly recommend, which was a great source for some of the initial impressions. Um, and the you know my memory is it's in that book. Um, and my memory is I was in the meeting. Yeah. No, there's a few other things I want to kind of hit on here in this first half. The second half, I want to dive deeper into Ukraine and the uh, the the efforts to interfere in the U.S. presidential election in 16. But there's a few things that really jumped out at me. You you spent a bit of time recounting Putin's time in Dresden. And uh, the point of that chapter to me seemed to be to debunk this uh, image that the Kremlin has created, that Putin was some kind of a super spy in Dresden. And you seem to present him as really not doing a lot, drinking a lot of beer and having a lot of fun. Um, and I was I was wondering if that was your your aim there in, in the Dresden piece. Now, we've learned a lot more about Putin's crime in Dresden from Catherine Belton, who you mentioned earlier on. I mean, her her reporting on his time in Dresden was the, the most fleshed out that I've seen yet. And well, there is some truth to this fact that, that Putin was just basically enjoying the good German beer. But also he was involved in a lot of things like Operation Luch, the massive kind of uh, money money moving uh, operation at, toward the end of the Soviet Union. He was involved in kind of honey traps, setting up kind of West German businessmen and turning them into turning them into assets. What was your goal in portraying the time in Dresden? Because I see that time as really formative. It, first of all, let's stipulate that things involving the intelligence world are going to stay shrouded and right. hard to you know know for sure. Um, exactly what Putin was up to. Um, I relied in part on other materials. Um, I didn't do the kind of original reporting that Catherine did. Um, but for example, if you go back and you look at books written by, there's a, I can't remember the name of the guy, but there's a book called Residentura, which was written um, by one of the people who was in Dresden. And then there's another, I think it, I think it's the same book. I, I need to look it up, but the Russian title is escaping me. Um, there's Marcus Wolf's writings course, yeah. and memoirs, former uh, Stasi foreign intelligence chief. So there are a lot of people at the time who, when Putin was first being portrayed publicly as you know a, a lauded KGB operative, who questioned that or who did not validate it. And I relied pretty heavily on that kind of material. And then one of the things that really stood out to me, and I, I think you know, I tried to capture this in the book, is the extent to which the Kremlin and Putin himself keep going back over and over these same years and experiences, and they keep embellishing or changing the story. And the, over time, like for example, as the illegals these you know, uh, Russian intelligence operatives who've been arrested at various points in the US 
and other places around around the world when they get embarrassed by the fact of their being arrested and then sometimes swapped for for uh, people and the Russians are holding in in uh, in jail. Um, Putin always goes to meet with them or sort of laud them yep. and sort of embrace himself in. I'm sorry, put himself in their refracted glory, even though the fact that they've all been uncovered surely is not indication that they've been very successful right, right. because they've been arrested and uncovered. Um, but but in any event, what's striking to me is the incident where Putin supposedly uh, was facing a mob right. outside the villa. And when you look at how that story has changed over time and the way it's been portrayed as Putin you know, facing a you know crowd of thousand plus people with a machine gun versus what actually happened. It's really stunning mm -hmm. how much yeah. things have been embellished. And so my normal skeptical nature tells me that Vladimir Putin was not the premier pointy end of the pointy end of the spear person that the hagiography seeks to convince you he was. Right. I mean, he was he was just a major when he arrived in Dresden. He, he got promoted to lieutenant colonel at some point. I mean, a lot of this has its roots in the image making during the, the, the his first presidential campaign. Remember when and you portrayed this in the book very well, how Gleb Pavlovsky and other image makers in the Kremlin wanted to make him in the image of Maxado von Stierlitz, of course, the fictional Soviet spy who's kind of known as the, the Soviet James Bond, uh, the main character in the 17 moments of spring TV series and and and. And, and novels. Another thing you portrayed well, that I, I, that's something I know a little bit about because I was reporting on it in the 90s. I was, I was based in St. Petersburg in, um, in the 90s of the gangsterism in St. Petersburg and the relationship between Putin and Vladimir Kumadin and other, other organized crime figures, figures in that city. Um, how, where did, what, what were you trying to convey there? Because again, this is another one of these formative periods. Yeah, and I think Catherine Belton's book is absolutely yeah. fascinating yeah. on that period um, and was a, a key source for what we did in, in the, the graphic novel. The, the image that I was really focused on was having lived through that period myself, what did I miss? And like, what was the criminality about? And what kind of shenanigans were people up to that made them boatloads of money? And Catherine's, you know, book yeah. has this great image, for example, about how the port of yep. Leningrad, yeah. then now St. Petersburg, was utilized as a conduit for importing and exporting all sorts of stuff. So you had used car, I mean, you had car theft rings in Western Europe, and they were using the port to bring the cars in. Um, there's this hilarious incident, which would have been lost to history. I can't remember how I first heard about it about this massive cocaine bust yes. where the uh, one of the major Colombian cartels was using Leningrad, or sorry, St. Petersburg as a transshipment point, I believe for a, a cocaine, uh, large cocaine shipment that was going to Western Europe. And then you have Cherkesov, who's one of Putin's buddies, right. um, who ultimately became sort of plenipotentiary in Northwest Russia when Putin set up these kind of macro government structures. Um, and he's freely saying in public, yeah, we, we've, we're we going to hold on to the Coke and we need to keep it for our state <laughs> reserves because we're down to a kilo or two in our state reserves. And I'm like, 
what? Like, why does Russia need a state reserve for cocaine? <laughs> for cocaine, right? <laughs> we said it was going to be used for medical purposes, if I remember correctly. As, as, as surely <laughs> it was. Um, you know, but it's, you know, it's things like that that were just so fun to pull and, yeah. you know, use this original source material from the time and to really kind of think about what did criminality then mean versus right. the kind of kleptocracy that we talk about today. No, and I, I kind of look at the – I like to juxtapose Dresden and St. Petersburg, and then I teach my course at, at, at UTA on, on Putinism. In the beginning of the course, I kind of juxtapose these two periods, Putin and Dresden and Putin and St. Petersburg, to kind of understand Putin. Because to really understand Putin, you have to say his, uh, you know, genealogically, he's a product of the KGB, but sociologically, he's a product of the wild, wild East capitalism of the 90s. And so you get those two things. I, I say it's kind of the spook and the godfather, right? And if you, you know, those, those two things just juxtaposed against each other. So I was really happy to see the way you also kind of juxtapose those, because I see those both as really, really formative. Um, two other things before we move into the second half to talk about Ukraine in 2016 and how you portray that and I want to I really like how you wrapped it up your unsatisfying conclusion was very satisfying actually but I'll I'll get to that in the second half Putin's reaction to 9-11 um and you know there's a been a, there's a lot of debate in the and the aftermath of that that was that was that a mirage uh, Putin was basically uh, you know trying to trying to leverage that for his own advantage or was this an opportunity lost i cer certainly believe the former on that but how was how was what was your goal there in trying to present the uh the the, the reaction to 9-11 and what and how and, and putin's attempts to ingratiate himself with the bush administration at that time so i'll, I'll probably have to cop to the fact that as a clinton administration official the uh fi the utter obsessive fixation on the threat of al-Qaeda and bin Laden in particular animated my everyday life at the NSC. And I think it's something that just can't be overstated how much any person working at the NSC on any issue back then understood that al-Qaeda and bin Laden basically took precedence and was the premier issue. And when the handoff occurred to the Bush administration, they didn't totally have the understanding or the awareness of the threat that people like Sandy Berger and President wow. Clinton did. And it was a real, uh, just a, a you know case study of how not to you know pass power from one party to the next. And hopefully, you know, that won't recur. Um, although it unfortunately did in the, uh, the, the handoff from Obama to, to Trump. But, but anyways, that, that aside, there was coming back to what we talked about earlier, there was abundant concern about what Putin was going to do as president of Russia and the democratic retreat and the pressure on free media, the pressure on business tycoons, and some of the pressure campaigns on country involving countries like Georgia. So people in the era when I was serving in the government were really worried, how do we prevent Putin from acting as if he can move forward with his agenda with impunity? And when the when the attacks happened on 9-11, I think part of what was motivating Putin was this is a way to get America off my back right. and basically yep. not exactly. be uh, in the doghouse over Chechnya and all these other things that he was already uh, involved with that were causing so much heartburn in, in Western governments. And there was definitely a certain level of, you know, of, um, of self-serving approach here. But I think he never was committed to the fight against terrorism because his definition of what was he was worried about was 
the territorial integrity of Russia and the right. possibility that places like Chechnya might break away and that he was really genuinely worried about that. And we just, the Venn diagrams of where those two sets of problems overlap aren't that compatible. And we were always very frustrated with the Russian lack of support on counterterrorism and the fact that they wanted a blank check in Chechnya to do horrible things. So when when I look at that period, that the same having said all that, there was a very fateful moment when the US was seeking basing rights for our military campaign against the Taliban and Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan. And it was a very contested topic in the Kremlin about whether to allow us to set up a, a ring of bases in Central Asia that would give us this extra benefit of being able to operate in different parts of Afghanistan. And it, in the end, was Putin who tipped that decision. And it was in a very, I think, very momentous, right. probably the single most important thing he did to support the United States after 9-11. Um, I'm less, you know, knowledgeable, but I, you know, not having served there at the time, on the things the Russians did to support uh, the cracked uh, the the effort to hunt down Al Qaeda and things like that globally. I doubt they did right, very right. much. I think they were mostly in receive mode. But but allowing us to have these bases in places like Afghanistan and Kyrgyzstan was was I think of huge importance. Right, bearing Putin Putin's attitude towards terrorism, we have to remember how he came to power in the first place on the backs of that. Those, those apartment bombings in Moscow, which most of the credible, uh, the preponderance of evidence suggests was indeed a false flag operation. I was in Moscow covering that at the time. We had our suspicions then. Our suspicions have only been confirmed ever, ever, ever since. Um, the um, the other thing I wanted to talk about was, because this is where you kind of present this, and I think this is correct, as the basically the decisive break, and that was the the colored revolutions. Um, and I, I found it interesting that you went back, you didn't just cover the colored revolutions in Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan, you went back to Serbia in 2000, which I, I found really interesting, kind of presented that as almost the first colored revolution and did a, you spent a good deal of time talking about Gene Sharp and his theories. Um, can, you, can you talk about that a little bit? Because I, I found that part of the book really, really illuminating. Yeah, I, this comes back to stuff that I was uh, aware of at the time when I was in government. And I remember being very scared at the time that it looked like Milosevic might fire on the protesters in the streets of, of Belgrade and other places in Serbia who had come out angrily over what looked like a stolen election and was a stolen election. And neither Putin or any of the other senior members of his team were willing to come to the phone when President Clinton and others were trying to get a hold of them to say, you need to convey to the Serbians, that the Serbs rather, that there should be no killing and no shooting. Um, and the Russians totally weren't making themselves available. And I found that very disturbing. But also, as I later learned, and there's a great book by David Scheimer called Rigged, and an article that David wrote um, in Foreign Affairs, where he's talking to President Clinton. And President Clinton, and I believe there's another person, I can't remember who it was, explained that there was a US covert action program. And that covert action program was aimed at getting Milosevic thrown out of office. And if you look back at the record of how the US was heavily involved in promoting and organizing the student movement that ultimately was the, the, right. the pointy end of the spear in removing Milosevic, you can easily imagine how the Russians might have, I don't have, I've never seen any Russians say this, uh, been aware that this sure looks like something the US government is doing that 
could be deployed against us down the road. And so for me, I think it is the, the moment that crystallizes in Russians' minds, senior Russian leaders' minds, including Putin's, that the US has these new tools that it's developing and they're gonna potentially be used against governments the United States doesn't like. Yeah, and I, I, I like how you, because the US was involved in Serbia at a much deeper level than it was, for example, in Georgia or Ukraine in 2004, 2003. And I think Putin, my, my theory of this is Putin walked away from Serbia saying, all right, this is the US basic blueprint for doing this. And then every time something like that happened, in the case of, you know, these are all genuine organic local uprisings, regardless of the degree or lack thereof U.S. involvement. But it's my understanding the U.S. was a lot less involved really directly in, in, in Ukraine and Georgia, but yet the template had been set in Serbia in Putin's mind. Was, was that your, because the way you presented these in the, in the book, I, I got the sense that that was your, your thinking too. That's exactly my thesis. And Putin, starting with the um, uh, events in, uh, I believe it's Tulip, Rose, then Orange, if I'm getting the sequence right. Rose, uh, or is orange, it Rose, Tulip, Tulip? Rose, Orange, Tulip, two, three, four, 2003, four, five, okay. yeah. So it's Georgia, Ukraine, Kyrgyzstan, um, in rapid succession. Putin sees patterns there of people power, spontaneous grassroots, popular unrest, um, in Ukraine, he also sees um, some of the people from the Serbian student movement on the streets, and he sees U.S. NGOs, and he sees, um, you know, the person that bothers him the most, George Soros. And he, you know, he's just convinced, oh, this is America, and that, you know, I cannot allow America in my backyard. And one of the things uh, in, my, in my backyard to cause trouble for me like this, but one of the things that I had forgotten, which I think listeners and others should also bear in mind is that shortly after the uh, Orange Revolution, literally within a couple weeks, there were the largest protests of the Putin era yes. on the streets of major Russian cities. And the issue that brought people out back then were unpopular uh, cuts in social benefits. Yep. Like, they were trying to monetize the social benefits, yeah. And that was what I think made Putin think, wow, this could happen here. And that you needed to go to war, as they did after that uh, Orange Revolution in 2004, with the vestiges of civil society. And you basically need to make sure that everyone who's part of the bureaucracy and the, the, the law enforcement and security services understands that rooting out this kind of foreign influence is a, is a is paramount concern because regime right. stability, and we, talk, we haven't really talked about this, but Regime stability and preservation are jobs one, two, three, four, five, six every day when Putin wakes up. But that's that's been the animating goal of his his time in office is staying in power. Right. And regime stability, I would add, is extends to control of the former Soviet space, most notably Ukraine. Belarus and, 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 and Georgia. I mean, I think they see the stability of the regime tied to the to the the, the pliancy of its of, of, of the regime's neighbors. I mean, that's going to come out in the second half when we when we talk about Ukraine. Um, that's a good way to segue here. I'm watching the clock. In a few moments, we will continue our discussion and look at how Andrew's book portrayed two events very close to our times. 
the Russian interference in the 2016 U.S. presidential election, and the full-scale invasion of Ukraine that was launched in February of this year. I'd like to remind you, you are listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UT McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. Joining me from our nation's capital is the one and only Andrew Weiss, author of the just-released graphic novel, The Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew's also served in the administrations of U.S. Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton in various posts, including Director for Russia, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff and as a member of the State Department's Policy Planning staff. These days, Andrew is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Pass, Stitcher, Spotify, by SoundCloud and TuneIn. If you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Кадры, которые мы получили только что, Владимир Путин. Нас никто не слушал. Послушайте сейчас. Привет, это Навальный. Я уже делаю свою работу. А сотрудники безопасности гоном вас. С новым веком. So as we record this program, Russian forces are retreating from the strategically vital Ukrainian city of Kherson. Should Kherson fall? It would mark a major watershed in the war and a humiliating defeat for Putin. And this would mark a remarkable turn of fate. Because just a few years back, after the 2016 interference in the U.S. presidential election, Putin was riding high and appeared to be, to many, to be invincible. Andrew, could you walk us through these two events? Because I, I, I like how you kind of portrayed this. After, after 2016, Putin had, the way you put it in the book, is he had, he had achieved something worthy of, of Sterlitz, right? Um, his, his, you know, his fictional hero. Um, and, then, and then Ukraine, um, the, the, the enormous blunder of Ukraine. Um, so so how, how, could you walk us through how you portrayed these two things in the book and why you chose to portray them the way you did? Sure. And I apologize if I'm going to be overly wonky or, you That's know, right. do too this much. Is a, of a this, is a, this is a wonky show. Our, show, our okay. listeners are all wonks. Okay. So forgive me for that. But let's just remember how bumpy the U.S.-Russia relationship was toward the tail end of Obama's, uh, uh, I guess we're talking about 2013. So that's the, that's actually the beginning of his second term. And Snowden's arrival in Russia put the relationship into a deep freeze. And there was a question of sort of how to get new life into that relationship. And when the uh, revolution of dignity broke out in late 2013 with the protests, the Euromaidan protests, and then the larger scale protests in early 2014, it definitely, I think, caught the United States and the Russians off balance and totally off guard. And Putin was focused on Sochi Olympics okay. and trying to preside over this great celebration of how wonderful his rule had been and all the prosperity and bread and circuses that he was going to deliver for the Russian people. And the Maidan spoils the party. And there's a kind of scramble throughout this period by the Russian authorities to pressure 
Yanukovych to use violence to kind of tell the protesters who's boss and kind of nip this thing uh, in the bud. But it keeps getting bigger and bigger. And as we know, Yanukovych was no great shakes as a president, and the whole thing just exploded. And Putin seems to have acted somewhat, to me, kind of uh, very, um, he lashes out, uh, seizes Crimea, starts the uh, covert war in uh, the Donbass region. And it, with the shootdown of MH, uh, MH17, it clearly turns him into a pariah. And he feels very isolated. And I think the seeds of the support for uh, Trump lie primarily in that period. And it's the isolation that Russia was experiencing, as well as the desire to undermine the US-European cooperation in punishing Russia and supporting Ukraine that foster these efforts to build bridges to populist groups, nationalist groups, and sort of wacko fringe groups across the Western world. And it's largely done in a very clumsy way. It is not super expensive. It's not super covert. But um, over time, those groups are benefiting from uh, the public mood. They're benefiting from the, the unresolved uh, fallout of the 2008 global financial crisis, where elites are perceived to have really you know, socialized the impact of their uh, extravagance and you know horrible handling of the uh, the the financial system and average people suffered the most, not well-to-do members of the elite. So there's a lot to work with there. Um, in the the you know early days, you see the Russian government enticing fringe political figures as well as uh, movement conservatives to come to Moscow and speak on RT and you know do these things. So you see people like um, Tea Party figures and people who are active in the conservative movement being seduced by the idea that Russia is a family values country or that Putin embraces these things. Um, and it's all to me very artificial and deliberate, some of which it's sort of funny was part of an effort that Putin had undertaken in 2011, 2012, to push back against the protest movement in Moscow after the, the election fraud was revealed in the 2011 Duma elections. And he just tries to use Pussy Riot and other uh, uh, examples of, you know, I don't know what you would call it, sort of pro-Western and more affluent segments of Russian society as the thing to oppose and to kind of appeal to a base electorate in Russia that would view those people as alien and un-Russian. So anyways, I think it's the confluence of all that stuff that ultimately leads to this remarkable pattern of the Russians trying to ingratiate themselves with any and all people associated with Donald Trump. No, and I I, I, I like, Andrew, how you, you point to 2013, because I do think that was a watershed year in this regard. Um, there was a white paper that came out of the Kremlin in early that year, um, basically arguing that Russia should inject itself into the cultural wars in the West. Um, this came after Putin's State of the Union, State of the Nation speech in, uh, in 2013, when he railed against, and I'm quoting here, the genderless and infertile liberalism of the West, right? This is when he began overtly uh, 
uh, repressing the LGBTQ plus community in Russia. This is when you had his overt kind of anti-feminist um, uh, uh, policies coming in, 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 into place. So 2013 was really decisive in, 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 the, in that regard. And this only accelerated as Russia became a pariah following the shoot down of, uh, of, of MH, uh, MH17. Was it your sense that they actually thought they were going to be successful in this operation or were they surprised by it? Because I've heard conflicting accounts of that. I, I look at it as more of a series of like lottery tickets mm -hmm. and small sort of angel investments where you pay 30,000 bucks and you can get Mike Flynn to come to Moscow to speak at some uh, silly event in honor of the anniversary of the founding of RT. Mm -hmm. uh, and likewise, they you know also embraced groups across the spectrum, like they were not ideologically doctrinaire and they embraced the Green Party in the US. Uh, yep, just Stein's candidacy in 2016. And one of the points that comes across in the book is that the number of votes that Jill Stein received in yep. three key states, I believe they were uh, Wisconsin, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan. Pennsylvania and Michigan are all like bigger than the margin of error, I mean, the margin between Clinton and Trump in those states. So having support and kind of trying to take uh, drain support for mainstream political parties ended up being very beneficial that year in ways that you know no one I think probably could have foreseen because the election was such a fluke. Right, and they and they were indeed playing on on the left and on the right. Let's move to Ukraine in the time we have left. I mean, you 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 um you do you spent a, a bit of time toward the end of the book. Of course, I was wondering how you were going to do this because I was wondering when you had actually finished it and if the war had started and how you were going to handle that. Um, it, it, to, to walk me through your thinking on how to handle that. It must have been you must have been coming up against deadline as the war started, right? Yeah, no, that was a book went to bed in March. Um, and the way it's written is to, you know, try to depict the drama and the horror that all of us were watching unfold in the wake of February 24th. But what I wanted to get across, and this is something I did a lot of work on at Carnegie, was the the predicate for war and Putin's mind. And the paper that you may remember that my colleague Eugene Rumer and I wrote. Yes. Uh, in October of 2021, uh, Ukraine, Putin's unfinished business, kind of tried to explain to people why war was coming right, right. and why Putin being an opportunist and an improviser saw the moment, as well as the possibility of him thinking about his legacy and the need to kind of deal with this problem sooner rather than later and not bequeath it to a successor. So what we got about, what we sort of stressed in that paper were three or four things. One, the notion that Putin doesn't believe Ukraine's a real country, never has uh, treated it as a real country. Two, a view that it wasn't so much that the United States or NATO was going to bring Ukraine into the fold as a full-fledged member of NATO, for example, but that we were using our relationship with Ukraine and conducting activities there that if you go back to the concern about color revolution, would have had impact on Russia's security. And so whether it was military activity, security activity, political activity, Ukraine is a great stepping off point to undermine the Russian government. And they were concerned about that. So there was a mushroom that was growing. And the analogy we used in the paper was of an aircraft carrier basically parked off the coast of southern Russia that was going to be there getting hundreds of millions of dollars of support from the United States Congress every year. And it was just going to grow and grow and grow. 
And then the, the elements that I think really pushed this all to the fore were the collapse of the, the Ghani government in Afghanistan and a Russian view that was a pattern matching, an, in, an inaccurate pattern matching. Yes. Of, here you have a US-supported regime, US-supported security forces and military, and if they experience real pressure, they crack and crumble and the leader will flee. As well as the last two, which I think are really key, were Angela Merkel's departure and retirement and the idea that Europe was gonna be more rudderless in, uh, the after the departure of Angela Merkel, as well as the fact that the Zelensky government at that point was mired in all sorts of unhappiness and controversy and had not delivered on the big- That's funny to remember, he was not popular when he was a war started. Yeah. But, no, that, that paid, that, go, go that, that was, and that sort of captured in the book is that you know Putin really saw his moment and miscalculated in a way that's so epic and so harmful long-term for he himself. No, I do in fact remember the paper you and Gene wrote it. It, it, it was it was very, very, very prescient um, indeed. Um, we're bumping up against the end here, Andrew, but I, I did want to close with the closing line of your book um, because I thought the closing, the closing line kind of stuck with me. Make no mistake, the world has a big Russia problem to confront, but seeing Putin um, as he wants us the world to see him rather than as he really is only makes the problem worse. Um, that, that line stuck with me. Uh, I, I endorse it wholeheartedly. Can you expand on that to take us off the air? It's, well, first of all, thanks for giving, thanks for giving away the, the end of the book, Brian. Okay. Um, <laughs> spoiler alert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, put that at the beginning of the program. That there's a spoiler alert. Um, no, the Russians are so good at getting in our heads and we allow them to do that because of the, you know, the, the nature of our system and the hunger for information, especially in a country like Russia, where there's very little real information available. And there's a lot of things that are being broadcast that they want us to see, as opposed to our ability to pull together a composite picture of specific facts and patterns and then draw conclusions. So we draw, we make our, our deductions on the basis of very, very imperfect data. And then finally is, we are often, and I don't think this is the case during the war, um, we've often been on the back foot with Vladimir Putin. And he's used the ability to throw us off balance and cut us down to size as his main stock and trade tools. And the war has been the ultimate flip of that pattern. And now he's the one who's on the back foot and he's trying desperately, whether it's through the uh, nuclear, sa nuclear saber rattling or other moves he's undertaking, where he's constantly looking for a way to get us off balance. And what he's seeing is resolve. And that's, I, I still think probably the, the, the sine qua non of effective US policy is resolve and being clear about what our red lines are and then enforcing them and clear about what our goals are and resourcing it and staying uh, and keeping faith with the things that we say we want to achieve. And the less gassy and the less kind of abstract those are, the better, because the Russians will exploit the the gaps between right. our stated policies and our and our follow through. So how does Putin want us to see him and how should we see him? Putin right now is a very different Putin than he was on February 23rd. Mm -hmm. And the 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 thing that he was hoping for in this war, which had served him so well in the previous crises was the sense that no one wants to tangle with a nuclear power and that when something bad happens, we will back off because we're so worried about that. 
And we've seen with the support for Ukraine and all the military support and other types of assistance we're providing them in their fight, that those rules aren't totally intact. They're, they're, they're not gone, and there's clear real there's clear reason to be worried about escalation, and there's clear reason to be worried about what Putin might do if he got truly desperate um, and was worried about regime collapse or something like that. Um, and that's why I think people have to take the risk of nuclear use in the Ukraine crisis quite seriously. But what we've seen overall is that the parameters of Western policy are now basically thrown out the window. And those went out the window pretty early in this war. Um, they were, you know, they were observed up until February 23rd. And then after February 24th, we're all in a, living in a brand new universe. Yeah. There's no resemblance, frankly, to the one that existed before. All right. You plan on writing a sequel? Uh, yeah, well, a friend of mine, Jack Schaefer, had a good one. It should be called The Accidental World War III. Oh, God. All right. On that happy note, we will wrap it up as that's all we have time for today. I'd like to remind you, you have been listening to the Power Vertical Podcast, which is produced by the University of Texas Arlington's McDowell Center for Global Studies in partnership with the Atlantic Council. I'm your host. My name is Brian Whitmore. I'm an assistant professor of practice at the UK McDowell Center and a non-resident senior fellow at the Atlantic Council's Eurasia Center. And joining me from our nation's capital has been the one and only Andrew Weiss, author of the just-released graphic biographical novel, The Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. Andrew served in the administrations of former U.S. Presidents George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton in various posts, including Director for Russian, Ukrainian, and Eurasian Affairs on the National Security Council staff and as a member of the State Department's policy planning staff. These days, Andrew is the James Family Chair and Vice President for Studies at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he oversees research on Russia and Eurasia. Asia. Thank you for an enlightening discussion, uh, Andrew, and, and congratulations again on the book. Thank you so much. Uh, my pleasure. And again, the book is called The Accidental Czar, The Life and Lies of Vladimir Putin. I got my copy. You all should get yours. I'd like to also thank our awesome production team in Arlington, Texas. Lance Legas is in the virtual control room. He keeps all the lights on and all the complicated machines well-oiled and in working order throughout our discussion. And Dylan Holberg handles our all-important post-production duties, cleaning up my many, many messes and making us all sound a lot better than we do in real life. I'd also like to remind you, you can subscribe to the Power Vertical Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, SoundCloud, and TuneIn. And if you do, please leave us a big fat five-star rating and review as that helps our visibility. You can also access the podcast, read the Power Vertical blog, and access all Power Vertical products at powervertical.org. And you can follow us on the Twitter at Power Vertical. Join us again next week. And until then, I leave you with the ambient sound mix that's been prepared by our production team.